From Seattle, I'm Zach Chabal, and this is a Vine Pair Podcast Conversation. We're bringing you these conversations between our regular podcast episodes in order to give you a better picture of how the COVID-19 crisis is impacting all parts of the business, as well as to provide a bit of hope and a path forward for all of us. Today, I'm speaking with Hannah Raskin. She's the food editor and chief critic at the Charleston Post and Courier and a return guest to the Vine Pair podcast. Hannah, it's, uh, I feel like we have more substantial things to talk about this time than just not including wine directors and in reviews. <laughs> what could be more important than that? But yeah, possibly. Yeah, the world, the world review having reviews in the first place might be the the place to start. So, so let's actually let's let's start with that. What what is your what has your job kind of been like uh, the last couple of months? Because I imagine it's probably been a little different than it was, say, the previous few years. Sure, um, I'm cooking at home for one thing. Um, it's <laughs> yeah. changed. Yeah, everything's changed quite a bit. Um, I'm clearly not doing reviews because there, for quite some time, there weren't any restaurants to review. Um, and went into full-on repertorial mode. I mean, I say that a critic is a journalist first and foremost, um, and so I've had a chance to put that to work. So when did you first kind of get the sense that like, huh, this is going to be a big deal? Right. So I love that you said you were going to ask that question because I got, I, I, you know, it just seems like it's been so long ago. I thought, when did I realize this? And, you know, it didn't take any sort of like crystal ball to know this was going to be a problem because we were one of the last states in the country to close our restaurants. So we knew it was going to be a big deal. Um, you know, and I, I don't know when, you know, I was out in Seattle in February. And even then, I think, you know, there was awareness of it. So I knew it was out there. And, you know, I did a story in early March about how the Spanish flu affected uh, Charleston restaurants. So I think that gave me some idea of maybe what we were in store for. Um, but, yeah, we were one of the last to to take any action. So you had already seen kind of the, the, the closures and stay-at-home orders sweeping other parts of the country. So you you knew what was coming. Absolutely. And so it was really advantageous. I could call up the folks I knew from Seattle and sort of look into the future and be like, what, what's going to happen? So, yeah. So, so with that, was there a, was there a period of, I mean, obviously this whole situation has had a lot of complicated factors for, for not just the restaurant industry, for, for everyone, but I'm wondering, you know, were you seeing some voluntary closures or other restrictions or reductions in terms of capacity in Charleston before an official governmental order came out? Not before and not after. We're one of the few states that reopened without any rules. Um, Restaurants can can do whatever they want to do. So there are recommendations that were issued by South Carolina Restaurant Association. So it's already the industry regulating its own industry and there's no enforcement whatsoever. So not before, not after. Um, What it did come down to in the case of Charleston, which is certainly the culinary leader in the state, was a couple of young restaurant owners, in particular a bakery owner, um, who kind of saw what was happening um, and really put pressure on their peers to close, um, even though there wasn't any uh, official mandate to do so. The baker of whom I spoke, um, he shut down his operation just trying to trip up other places, knowing that they were so dependent on his bread. Um, his idea was that, you know, maybe if they can't make sandwiches, they can't open. I mean, it was this real feeling of desperation and you know, we're all going to die. Uh, it was this really, really urgent feeling because the government wasn't taking any action whatsoever. Wow. Okay. So now 
presumably from what you've said, rest, a restaurant that wants to could be open with zero, so with 100% capacity, no no one, either staff or guests wearing any kind of, you know, wearing masks, anything, gloves. Like you could theoretically walk into a restaurant in Charleston and think you were, you know, it was one year ago today, right? In fact, that's exactly right. I mean, that's been the experience because I've gone out to cover, you know, they did gradually open first outdoor, then indoor. Um, So on each of those opening days, I, you know, went out just to take in the scene and nothing has changed. I mean, nothing had changed. Um, It really, our closure measured in Charleston terms were from St. Patrick's Day to Cinco de Mayo. This is a big party town and parties on both ends of that closure were wild. Um, I was actually just out yesterday in downtown Charleston, just counting how many restaurants had masks, uh, servers and masks. Um, I don't know what the policies were, but just, you know, would you be served by a server without a mask? And four out of 10 restaurants are not using masks for their servers. Wow. So uh, this is a hard question to answer because it's going to require a little bit of just conjecture on your part. So I certainly know, you know, I don't, uh, I don't expect you to be totally accurate, but is your sense that like, business levels are normal? Are there people staying away because they're still concerned about the threat of COVID-19? Or or is, is the general vibe in the city like, eh, whatever, let's go on with it? Yeah, um, that is certainly the vibe. That's always been the Charleston vibe. It was interesting last week when the mayor addressed sort of the city working hand in hand with restaurants to allow the restaurants to police themselves. Um, when he spoke, he was going to reference um, the numbers of casualties and cases, as he often does when he speaks on things related to COVID. And he prefaced it by saying, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. Because that is the real threat in Charleston that you're seeing as being negative. God forbid, you know, you actually get sick. It's the negativity that that's the threat. I mean, I, I would say give you conjecture plus a little open table data, which I was just looking at. Um, you know, they say what percentage uh, year over year they have folks coming in eating at restaurants. And look, we're way down. And I certainly don't want to minimize the challenges that our restaurant owners here are facing. We're way, way off. Um, we're at something like 25% of where we were last Last year in terms of diners coming into the restaurant. But that means the only place where res- where restaurant goers have come back in higher numbers is Oklahoma. Huh. So South Carolina, is, they're right out there. They're very enthusiastic to get back to restaurants. Interesting. Okay, so let's start. Let's talk about that then. So so what are, what are you doing now? I mean, are this and you can you can feel free to not be totally honest about this if you don't want to be. But like, are you going in and are you going to be going in and reviewing restaurants? Do you personally feel comfortable with that? Yeah, it's a great question. So at this point, not only do I not feel comfortable going into restaurants, I mean, this is brand new, as we know, um, especially here because we're, we're behind all y'all out, out west. Um, so not only am I not comfortable with it, you know, I, I don't know if it's right for my readers. And so at this point, I made the decision, I'm not even listing the restaurants which have reopened uh, because to me, there's just a risk in sending folks to those places. It's only been a few days and I just don't know. Um, in terms of, you know, when the health evens out, you know, and hopefully things are safe and, and hopefully there's a vaccine and all that. So then the question is, what becomes reviews then? And one of the considerations, which isn't the least bit philosophical, but certainly is part of the fallout of this entire crisis, is my newspaper gave its coverage away for months as a public, you know, public uh, resource. Um, what that means is we don't have money left to do reviews. There, there is no budget. Uh, so I don't know if that becomes a consideration at some of the larger papers, but for us, that's where our budget went. 
Interesting. So, so let's talk a little bit more about the, this idea of kind of what, it's hard to say, but like what responsibility you feel like you have, because I think this is a really fascinating question too. Cause I mean, reviewers, I think, and, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, aren't necessarily champions of individual restaurants all that often, but they are certainly champions of dining out and of, and yes. of going to restaurants. And this is probably the, I can't imagine there being another time, certainly in, in either of our careers and really anyone who's working in the industry where you really have to decide, do I actually think that's good? Like, am I doing a disservice by encouraging people to go dine? So, so I mean, uh, it sounds like the way you're handling that for now is is not doing that, is to not kind of encourage people or, or to or to be a little bit more circumspect in that. But but is that is that accurate? I think that is accurate. I mean, there were days early on in this crisis, as I said, because there wasn't much leadership coming at the state or local level or federal for that matter. Um, you know, I, uh, I would say to my husband, I was like, I need to save the people, you know, like I very, very much felt like there was some pressure upon me to do everything I could to bring people's attention to the risks inherent in dining, not so much for the diners, although of course I care about them, but the workers I've always, you know, we would not have hospitality without the people who work so hard to make it happen. And so that was always the frightening part to me is the diners are having a great time and they're not taking any precautions. uh, And that really puts our our good working people uh, at risk. Yeah. Okay, so so let's talk about another element of this whole situation, which is Charleston, and and my sense of this is is that you know a lot of the restaurant industry in Charleston is is very dependent on tourism. I mean, you know, Charleston is a city that punches above its weight class in terms of you know the population when it comes to to restaurants, and that's I think driven a lot by the tourism industry. What's the early read on how that is going to impact? Because even if you know. South Carolina, even if Charleston says, hey, we're open for business, I certainly think there's a lot of people who might have otherwise thought about a vacation that are going to, not because of something specific to Charleston, just because of the the risk going to say, you know what, we're not going anywhere this year. Absolutely. And it's, it's, everyone's terrified. I mean, this town really can't make it without tourism. And as you say, I mean, whether the reasons are because someone lost their job or they're immunocompromised and can't get on a plane, whatever it is, we know the tourism numbers are going to be down. And there's really no way to surmount that. I think, you know, we are, the city is pitching itself, as you say, open for business. You know, if you don't like the precautions they're taking where you live, come to us where we don't take them. Uh, so there is kind of a selling point there, but not even close to enough of what you would need to compensate for what's been lost. And are you getting the sense that there are, have there been, or will there, do you think there will be permanent closures of, of some, you know, really kind of important restaurants? Yeah, thank you for asking that. So we have um, lost probably a half dozen restaurants on the peninsula, which is where downtown Charleston is located. If you look at a map, we're surrounded by water on all sides. Um, So we've lost about a half dozen significant restaurants and most significant among those. um, And I'm sure this is happening all across the country. um, We're two black owned restaurants. Um, Black restaurant ownership has been on the wane downtown for decades. Um, and sadly, this seems to be continuing that narrative. And is there any effort being made at the city or county or state level to provide additional support for the restaurant industry beyond whatever, you know, frankly, minimal support is happening at the federal level? Somewhat, yeah. I mean, nothing, you know, nothing um, that's going to set any standards. I don't think we're doing what they can. I mean, for instance, there's been a suspension of the hospitality tax, right, which is great. That helps out the restaurant owners in the short term. 
in the long term. That's the money used to market Charleston as a tourist locale. So, you know, as we know, with all of these measures, there's, you know, you have pros and cons. So I don't know that anyone's come up with anything that really looks like it's going to be a win-win-win. So let's let's look a little bigger picture, because not only, obviously, are you the the food editor and chief critic in Charleston, but you, as referenced or mentioned before, you've worked in Seattle. I know you've worked a few other parts of the country as well and, and have just a general sense for the industry. Do you get the sense that um, there are plausible changes that can be made to make this the industry viable going forward? I mean, uh, do you have a sense for whether it's some of the proposals that have been put out by well-known restaurateurs or, or other things? Like what, what if you had a magic wand, what would you want done to, to make the industry more viable? I mean, sadly, as someone who adores buffets, I think that part of the industry is just real serious trouble. Um, oh, man, I never knew that about you. Interesting. Oh, my gosh. I'm really, yeah. So um, I'm very much into, you know, the whole thing I like about dining is I like the communal aspect. So I do have a real weakness for the Japanese steakhouse for here in the South, the fried seafood buffet. Like, I think those things are terrific. And I think those things are in mortal trouble. Um, but although now the state here doesn't say so, so they are, they are allowed to keep operating should they so choose. We'll see what happens. Um, anyhow, in terms of the industry at large, I mean, this had been coming for a long time. And I think a lot of the restaurants that we see go down first, I don't know if this has been the experience in Seattle, but they were probably going to go down anyhow, you know, um, everyone's operating on such thin margins. Um, and so many of, you know, the, the problems with the industry result from that, um, workers not getting paid what they deserve, um, all sorts of mismanagement issues because there's just not enough money to go around. So yeah, I think that model is going to have to be rethought. And I've, you know, I've thought for some time that sort of, you know, middle ground restaurant is probably not, you know, for this world for much longer. Yeah, it does seem to me that there's going to be much more of a bifurcation of the industry where you are going to have, you know, fine dining will survive for those who have the means and the disposition and fast casual type will survive because people don't want to cook for themselves every single day, except for perhaps, you know, beleaguered critics who are relishing not going out to dine every day. <laughs> but but yeah. that that middle of that you said, yeah, that middle ground yeah. is where the where the the big losses I think are going to be. Last question for you kind of going forward. Um, you know, one of the things I think that's really uh was remarkable to me when I was down in Charleston um this past year and and is I think a, a really cool thing is that you know Charleston itself and and certainly the sort of low country uh in South Carolina has its own distinct culinary traditions and and one of the real risks of of restaurant closures and things like that is losing some of those culinary traditions especially as you mentioned you know with black owned restaurants being a big um you know uh promulgator of those traditions so for those of us who maybe aren't in Charleston and may not be visiting Charleston anytime soon are, are, can you direct us to whether they're cookbooks or, or you know, I don't know if there are um, chefs who are doing things on uh, social media or whatever, where where people can kind of get some kind of access to those that kind of culinary tradition without um, you know doing what I've normally encouraged, which is going to Charleston. Absolutely. So you know, I'm glad you said that because I think we may have talked about this previously, but one of the distinctions between a city like or a place like Charleston, a place like New Orleans is our restaurant culture is almost brand new um, in large part because of liquor laws, you know, didn't make dining um, at all feasible until recently. So 
we're not at so much risk of losing this long tradition of dining out. It just isn't one in Charleston. People here always ate at home. So what we're doing now is actually more similar to what Charleston has always done. Um, one of the great books about Charleston, at least in the um, early 20th century, is called Three O'Clock Dinner, which is a great Charleston tradition, which is the big meal was just in the middle of the afternoon every day. Um and there were, uh, I mean, part of the reason for that was, in fact, racist, is that they didn't trust having African-Americans in their home after dark. Um, it's, so anyhow, this tradition began. Um, Three o'clock dinner is a, it's a great kind of look into Charleston. Um, in terms of the home cooking traditions, what people were eating and what was thriving, um, there is an outfit here. Uh, it's called Carolimas. It's a catering group that once had, when I say catering group, I mean, it's a woman and her sister. They had a restaurant and they are now on Instagram, um, just doing home cooking demonstrations of, you know, crab cakes and, and red rice and, you know, the things that probably would have been served at three o'clock dinner. So um, it's Carolimas with an M as in lima bean, which is a, another great Charleston tradition. Uh, Carolimas on Instagram. And those are some really fun videos. Gotcha. Well, I, we will uh, post try and post a link to that in the description cool, cool. for this episode. All right. Well, Hannah, I mean, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I know it's uh, obviously for, for so much, for almost everyone we speak to and for these conversations, it's, uh, you know, this crisis has been a kind of career altering situation in one fashion or another. And, and obviously, you know, no different for you. But uh, we, like I said, really appreciate you giving us the insight. And, and we certainly hope to be able to talk to you again sometime soon when we can talk about much more fun things like, you know, dining out in Charleston uh, safely. Absolutely. And of course, Charleston, let me to say we'd love you to come and eat with us. So we hope you do as soon as you can. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Zach. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Erica Ducey, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vine Pair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.